This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Jake Cantor. On the agenda this week, we mull over all the news from MIPCOM and consider the BBC's five pledges to improve indie relations. We'll also have previews of BBC Three's Life is Tough and Who Are You? Grayson Perry's latest creation for Channel 4. Between all of that, BBC Productions Head of Science Andrew Cohen will join us to discuss Brian Cox's Human Universe. So strap yourself in, that's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Joining me at Talking TV Towers, it's the Dream Team. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome back Outline Managing Director Laura Mansfield and, of course, Stephen D. Wright. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. Hello, hello. Do you like being called the Dream Team? Oh, yeah. We are the Dream Team. It's official. This should be filmed. There's such a kind of chemistry. There's a a buzz. (laughs) I want a (laughs) T-shirt. Tangible. (laughs) Have you guys been watching The Apprentice? I... Decided I wasn't going to watch the Apprentice, no. and then last night happened to catch the end of the task and thought, well, it's a load of rubbish. And then, of course, I ended up watching the whole bloody thing and hate every one of the candidates, every single one with a passion. But of course, that's what it's, that's all, what about. it's all about. But that's what you're it? supposed to do. I know, but I hate being tricked by that. You know, you think, I've seen this all before, and, and at Sir, 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 Sir Alan, Lord Sugar, as you have to call him now, just seems like an old pantomime dame the way he throws out the one liners. But this, you know, it's just irresistible. Seeing, do you think all those are scripted? I would think they are. Most of them, surely. Everything in TV scripted. Somebody's scripting (laughs) me right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, hopefully we can get you off script with our first news story. Um, We'll kick off quickly with the news that Great British Bake Off Commissioner Emma Willis is leaving the BBC after nearly nine years to join 2020 as a creative director. Uh, This was a bit of a shock to us, I thought. Uh, She seemed pretty settled at the BBC. What, What do you make of it? Yeah, I think it was, you know, a really pretty big piece of news and I'm sure everyone's going to be talking about it this morning. But, you know, it's a massive coup for Tim Carter, 2020, who I think is a amazing talent spotter on screen and off. And it's going to be interesting. I mean, life is very different on the other side between sort of buyer and seller. So I think everyone will be watching to see what she does next, what happens next. And of course, in the roundabout of commissioning, it opens a really interesting job at the Beeb. So... Interesting. And I mean, she used to work at Wall to Wall, so she's experienced life in production. But how easy is it to cross between those two divides, Stephen? It depends. I mean, nine years is a bit like a life sentence. So it's it's you know it's it's that thing of has she been institutionalised by the BBC? A life sentence. Well, you know, I mean, that's what you get for murder these days. So she's been for nine years at the BBC. Will she be able to sort of you know shake that off? Yes, but it will be a culture shock, definitely, because it's a it's a harder world than when she she last worked in it. More vicious, more cruel. More competition. More, well, just, just more, ugh, more evil. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll move on to, to something else. It's that time of the year when the industry gathers in Cannes for MIPCOM. Uh, from our vantage in London, it seemed a relatively quiet market, uh, but I thought we could scan through uh, some of the notable deals from the Quasette. Uh, first up, uh, 2.4 and Shine International flogging classroom fixed rig format educating to China's Hunan TV. Uh, this is a great bit of business, isn't it, Laura? This is a fantastic piece of business, um, not only for Shine and 2.4, but potentially for, you know, all of us who make reality TV and 
British indies because what's been happening in China are the big studio reality shows they've been picking up formats for. Then the last trend when we went over in um, April as part of the Pact group was they were looking for what they call outside reality. So they were really looking for like, what's the next survivor? But we were very much getting the vibe that what they were looking for was consultancy from British producers as opposed to formats. So the fact that this deal has gone through, the fact that it's a format that really breaks the mould in terms of what's been seen on Chinese television till now, you know, I think... All of us should hope it's a massive success because this could really unlock the floodgates to some really big deals happening you know, across the board. Is it the new frontier? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's the future <laughs> of TV. It really is. We could be it. We could be you know, making shows for China. God, we could all retire tomorrow. But we've got to get the business first. That's the thing. So this is so yeah. How easy right. is that? I mean, you were out there earlier this year. It's not easy at all because there are no rules. We are, you know, the way that we operate in in this industry in the UK, we're very protected by uh, legislation, by rules of the broadcasters. We're also a very, you know, structured industry. And when you go over to China, this is all brand new. These the deal structures are being formed. Different ways of do, doing deals are happening. There are no guidelines really so everyone's going out there from the enormous super indies to the small players to try and work out is there a new shape and size of deal so i think yes potentially this when we can we're looking at growth it's 40 percent sort of year on year but it's going to be difficult to get stuff away and i think you know for us we're looking kind of four or five years down the line when things have settled down i think then that's going to be when it's turning into a really mature market and when it's going to be much more straightforward to do deals in the way that it is in america australia canada etc i mean you mentioned the the growth that was mentioned in the uh, in the pact export survey it's clear that things are moving out there isn't it Without yeah. doubt, but we're, you know, don't forget that we're going from a position where three years ago there was nothing. So when you're looking at sort of growth from kind of naught to you know, it is a handful of deals still being done versus when you look at the scale of you know the deals that are being done in America, for example. I, I can't remember what the figure is, but it's absolutely enormous. So yes, the year-on-year growth is much lower, but the size of the market now and the opportunities for British indies is much, much greater over there. And I think that's the balance to not lose perspective. But yeah, I mean, we're trying to do stuff in China and I think everyone should be. Okay, also in Cannes, uh, the new look slimmed down Bob the Builder was unveiled. Stephen, what did you you think of... Uh, of the new look Bob the Builder? I, I really didn't think that much of it, actually. It didn't, it didn't touch me in the same way that it's obviously touched you, Jake. I mean, People you know, seem to be talking about it, though. I mean, all the papers are fascinated by it. <sighs> I think the creator of the character said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I know, well, see, I, pun, I'm, I'm very traditionalist when it comes to animation and kids' things. Those are very iconic. I hate when they sort of do that new gloss and the new look and... I mean, I even don't like when you see the old old versus the new Simpsons. You know what I mean? So when it does change the look, I, uh, you know, that's you know, I am I am an old fuddy duddy when it comes to that sort of thing. But You're I think a fan we of all are. It's nostalgia, isn't it? Something which you watched when you were younger, and that sort of feels like that's how it's supposed to look. Mm. You don't want them messing with it. It's like when they changed Morph from being a really lovely little plasticine figure to being a sort of animated thing. Sort of. Ooh. You became controller of BBC Two at one point, Morph. I think. <laughs> yeah, terrible, terrible time for the industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're, I mean, Channel Five have picked this up. They're going to do the Wombles as well. So presumably, the Wombles are going to get a uh, over. Wombles are probably skateboarding and yeah. taking selfies. I hate all. This. <laughs> Skateboarding like uh, yeah. Rasta Mouse. 
Where's Uncle Bulgaria yeah. when you need him? Oh. Right. <laughs> See? Yeah, exactly. Uh, sticking with Can, uh, Simon Cowell's also in town and on feisty form. Uh, after being crowned the market's personality of the year, he proceeded to stick it to the Great British Bake Off, claiming he'd rather watch warbling X Factor wannabes than the icing set on a chocolate eclair. It was perhaps a preemptive strike ahead of next year's National Television Awards, where Cowell will battle it out with the Bake Off's Mary Berry to be crowned best judge. Uh, what do you reckon to Cowell's? Bake I mean, Off low blow. I'm kind of I'm kind of with him a little bit because I am not a huge Bake Off aficionado. However, this is just old hot air from Cowell as he does every year. Slag off another show, get a bit more publicity. They all do it at this time of the year. They're all slagging <laughs> off Strictly. You know, everybody I hate Strictly. You know, it's like you can have both. But the point is, Bake Off is the winner. Bake Off is winning. Big time, and so he just looks a bit silly. It peaked with this. 30 million viewers for the final last week. It could argue. be the biggest show of the year. Yeah, you can't <laughs> argue with that. I mean, I don't care whether a, you know, a soggy bottom is a soggy bottom or not, but everyone else does. That's the point. And it's going to grow from there. I mean, I sort of you look at the figures now, and I, I suspect that Carol is probably slightly running scared. Is you know next year if it's if it's sort of nearly combating the royal wedding in terms of viewers this year, what's it going to be next year? It's only growing. I mean, I think we all thought maybe a couple of years ago that it was at the height of its viewing figures. It's translated to BBC One. It's gone extraordinarily well. Yeah, he should be worried. It's it's selling globally as a format, but you know. My heart is still with X Factor. Is it? Oh, I'm a sucker for all of that stuff. You know, ultimately, you watch it, you know you're being manipulated, but it works every time. The, the stories, the songs, the whole thing, it's a great package. So the ratings for the uh, the live launch on Saturday were the lowest in seven years. Yeah, that, but, I mean, that... don't forget, they've, they've done a disastrous fortnight of triple shows and things like that. That really burnt the kind of... I mean, I'm an ardent fan of the X Factor, but you, it really, really sort of pushed your enthusiasm and there was a lot of kind of Ugh, are we really watching this it, it, it was it was a terrible scheduling decision to have that friday saturday sunday thing for two weeks in a row because that kind of it, it ate up a lot of your enthusiasm so by the time the live show started there was a kind of so what kind of quality now the live shows have started it will start to grow again because it, it, it kind of morphs into its next incarnation but i think that over scheduling or hammering it home was too much for the viewers Cow slagging off Bake Off sort of conveniently forgets food, glorious food. Which, uh... <laughs> yeah, we've all conveniently forgotten that one. Yeah, because that was that was exactly it. Food, glorious food was a rip off of the Bake Off, and it just it failed. You know that really didn't rise. No, I mean I think the whole point about Bake Off is it is kind of gloriously itself, mm. and there isn't anything else like it, and that's why it has done sort of so surprisingly well. But no, I shouldn't imagine they showed clips of Food Glorious Food at sort of uh, Simon's big presentation at MIPCOM where David Cameron sort of accoladed him and all that sort of stuff. Apparently, Cow's tearful. We'll move on. No commissioner of the fortnight this week because, quite frankly, it uh, it seems like everyone's naffed off to Cannes. However, we briefly ponder some commissioning principles put in place by uh, BBC Director of Television Danny Cohen, uh, reacting to unflattering findings in an Edinburgh commissioning survey and direct feedback from suppliers. Cohen has demanded improvement, uh, simplicity and improving clarity for producers are at the core of his five new guidelines, which he has asked all BBC commissioners to abide by. Uh, Laura, this can only be good news, can't it? This is absolutely good news. I think it's an example of fantastic leadership. He's accepted that there's an issue. He's doing something about it. 
I absolutely welcome this. So, you know, brilliant. I think, you know, the BBC ought to be leading the field in trying to kind of push forward initiatives and it ought to be the best behaved broadcaster. And it looks like it will be. I mean, I think the interesting thing will be the proof will be in the pudding. I mean, let's see what happens, you know, six months down the line. Let's see also what happens when it's not some small little commissioner or it's not a small project where there may be an issue. What happens when it's one of the big ratings winners? What happens when it's, you know, a big issue? I think that will be telling. But, you know, I think Danny's up for it. So uh, great. Yeah, I mean, he did put in some principles, I think, this time last year uh, ahead of <laughs> ahead of the uh, the the first Edinburgh survey, uh, but it just feels like perhaps they haven't been acted upon as as quickly as he he would have hoped. No, this happens every year, not just at the BBC, but with most most channels. I remember when I was a commissioner at Channel Four, there was a an edict went through saying you couldn't keep people waiting for more than fifteen minutes in reception. <laughs> I mean, how long did that last for? About fifteen minutes. It was, <laughs> you know, it's you know the the problem with with commissioners are is that they're they're overloaded with bureaucracy. There's so much stuff for them to go through and there's such a small gap for them to get things through, the, the, the sort of assembly line of, of idea to commissioner to controller to whatever. That's the problem with everything. That's That logjam backs up all the way, which is why you start getting meetings cancelled. It's why you start getting commissions uh, paused. It's why you get, you know, the indies. The indies are the last people in the in the sort of the food chain and they're always the ones to suffer the most. And so, yes, absolutely, I totally uh, agree with Lawrence as far as this is that this is the right thing to be saying, but the proof is in the pudding. Mm. Will it still be the same? Will there be another one of these, uh, you know, initiatives in six months, in a year, in two years, whatever? But, but you know, generally, the, the, the broadcasters have to clean up. They have to streamline. They have to realise that common courtesy costs nothing. Sometimes that's all it takes. You know, being a, being ignored when you send an email in by a commissioner for two weeks is is absolutely normal. Being ignored for three months is becoming normal. That's outrageous. So plenty for the BBC to think about. Uh, that's your news for this week. Uh, thanks to Laura and Stephen. Now then, he's become the poster boy for TV science and his latest landmark series is currently airing on BBC Two. But while Brian Cox is synonymous with space, the human universe has a slightly different orbit, pledging to reveal more about our place in the universe. Don't worry, though, there's still plenty of opportunity to see Cox explain impenetrable physics using little more than an espresso cup. We headed over to New Broadcasting House to meet Human Universe's executive producer, Andrew Cohen, who told us more about the series and working with Professor Cox. But before that, here's Brian at his best. A game of cricket is played out according to a set of simple laws, and so it is for the universe. And here are the laws of the universe. This is the standard model of particle physics, and this is Einstein's general theory of relativity. And you can fit them easily on a scorecard. And here are the laws of cricket. And it has to be said, at least in this notation, that cricket is more complicated than the universe. But even given these simple laws, the number of ways that both games can play out is effectively infinite. So the laws do not make the outcome predictable. 
Uh, well, welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Just wondering, could you tell us what sets Human Universe apart from some of Brian's other series? What sets it apart? It's interesting because you know these series take a long time to both develop, to get commissioned, and obviously to produce. And so they sort of evolve all, all the way through production, actually. I think this one, what sets it apart most of all is that it's about us. So we've kind of looked at, at the solar system, we looked at the universe, we've looked at... Uh, life but we've never really put human centre stage and so this series is all about putting us centre stage celebrating humans as, as Brian has said it's a love letter to humanity so uh, you talk us through the development process how do you arrive at the ideas for the series well there's there's been sort of something lurking in every previous series that then leads to the next one actually and it often comes very early in in the rushes and I see a sequence or someone on the team sees a sequence and it just starts to spark an idea so with Wonders of the Solar System we actually were started to develop a series called Universal which was sort of an idea of looking at the universal laws uh, that apply across the universe because we didn't know that Wonders was going to become any kind of brand. And so, so we, we, we'd started thinking there was a scene in Wonders of the Solar System where he's describing a tornado and the physics of a tornado and how that applies to the motion of a solar system or a galaxy. And so it's often that the triggers are found Little in kernels. Earlier, earlier series. Equally, there's at the very, very end of Wonders of the Solar System, there's a whole sequence where he looks at snotites, um, which are these strange, weird life forms that kind of depend on sulfur. They're very, very, very odd. They're in, I think, Mexico, where we filmed them. And that actually was the trigger for Wonders of, of Life. And then when, we, when you look at Wonders of Life, you'll see there's a scene in the first show which he goes to watch the Day of the Dead, uh, actually. Uh, and it's an extraordinary sequence of death ritual uh, that we filmed at the beginning of that show. And there was something in that interaction between him and humanity and what that tells us about the big questions about our place in the universe that sort of started to trigger us towards uh, what became Human Universe. How much does Brian lead you, or is it very much you, you see these the, these kernels of um, uh, of potential to, to, to spin out uh, in, into another series, or is he involved in the process right from the start? What's been great about the whole project with with Brian and looking at all of his series is is just how different people have had lots of investment at different times in the process. So, for instance, Gideon Bradshaw, who is the series producer of Human Universe directed one of I think the most important horizons that we did with Brian it was the first time actually that he'd looked down the lens looked down the camera so he was pivotal in in developing Brian as a presenter at that stage about five six years ago he then produced the first episode of Wonders of the Solar System had nothing to do with Wonders of the Universe uh, and then his series producing Human Universe so and a lot of the people that work on these series have long-standing relationships so it's properly creative I guess we you know there's a lot of people who are invested in this and there's a lot of conversation that goes on around it i have to say watching it as a viewer it it strikes me as being a a bit of a logistical nightmare to pull together because you're all over the world talk us through that process and how you map that out as a you know as a a production plan it's bloody ambitious as a series (laughs) and i I kind of probably as, as, as ambitious intellectually as it is from a production point of view and it's interesting how if you want something to be as challenging intellectually to the audience you've got to be fairly slavish to filming it in some kind of order i think the best films that we've made are the ones where you you know brian is allowed to go on 
a true journey through the story. It doesn't always happen, obviously, but when it does happen, that, I think that, that really helps in the production. So there's a, there's a lot of intellectual wrangling that goes on through these series, obviously. In terms of production, um, it is complex and difficult, and you have to take some risks. Um, probably the best example of that in human universe is the scene in Kazakhstan, watching the Soyuz capsule come back down to Earth. Which was extraordinary. I mean, it, the access alone must have been quite hard to secure. It could have gone very horribly wrong and we could have spent a huge amount of money with Brian standing in a cold, snowy field in Kazakhstan with nothing happened. I mean, number one, you're relying on the capsule coming down on time. And if they cancel, they don't just tend to go the next day. It all has to be reset. And so, you know, we would have lost the whole thing. When they were out there, it was much, much colder than we were expecting. All of our vehicles got stuck. And so Brian and the cameraman, Paul O'Callaghan, basically were given a last second offer to jump in another part of the kind of Russian military's uh, transport to grab all of the equipment they could and to just go. And so the rest of the crew were left behind. So there's, a, there's quite a lovely irony about the fact that probably the most memorable sequence from a landmark series was kind of the least staffed and kind of the least planned. It's kind of it's grabbed it's rough we didn't have a sound man you know there was no one to produce brian and it's absolutely brilliant so that probably tells us a little bit about the <laughs> it's interesting because it felt planned it felt like he was really going along for the ride and he'd been invited into the vehicle with the with, with the team and <laughs> it, it, it was planned and then it was always going to be more actuality it wasn't mm. planned that we were going to have to leave half the crew in the middle of a field not knowing where brian was and he was gonna have to stay up half the night kind of drinking vodka and eating god knows what in a kind of local house so it was that's the brilliant thing about taking risks actually that you know if you get the planning right then you 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 encourage the luck that comes along with that were you hoping to see the shuttle land we thought we would we thought we we might be there for it to actually come down we thought the whole thing you know obviously in the mind of television producers you think the whole thing is going to be more controlled than it was but it added an amazing excitement to it and i think What's great is, you know, people sometimes don't like the process of going through the kind of the heavy scripting and understanding of what every sequence is for. But because we had done that, it was really clear, you know, when they went off and did it themselves, they, they knew what they needed to get. And I thought it was brilliant. I thought the life it brought into the, into the actual film was amazing as well. How planned are the moments where, you know, this, this is, I guess, what Brian's become sort of famous for, is it taking inanimate objects... Uh, things we use every day and using them to explain quite impenetrable physics. Is that all planned very carefully? One of the things that we've always looked to do is get the balance right between planning and just freedom to communicate and to play on location. So lots and lots of the stuff that you see is is grabbed on the road and because the crew are talking and are developing and have a really good idea that's why I sort of said that it really helps actually if they are going in some kind of order through the story not always possible but it, but it does help I think it's a good combination of the skills on the series and as an executive producer I hate the idea I mean absolutely hate the idea of, of sending a team out thinking that they've got to deliver a script that can't be a good thing for, for anyone it's getting the balance right because you pick up inspiration along the way is that, is that what yeah I and mean, he's a brilliant communicator and we've got brilliant producers and directors and cameramen and teams on the ground who need to react to what they're feeling and seeing and when I grew up as a director you know you literally had these written pieces to camera that the film effectively stopped for uh that were you know very heavily filmed on you know legs and you just kind of you know off they went they said their bit and then the film carried on again and 
that's not television anymore and it's certainly not a style that suits Brian. Uh, you mentioned that first Horizon documentary that he did. When did you realise that you you, know, you had something special with him and, uh, and that there was potential beyond uh, some of the more straightforward science documentaries that we, we see on television? I'd love to be able to say here and kind of sit here and say that <laughs> I, I discovered him. <laughs> a eureka moment. I, yeah. I think the big lesson and the kind of my position as head of science as well at the BBC, I'd say that the big lesson from looking at something like that is, number one, it takes a bloody long time to get good at television. And I don't believe anyone rocks up and does it really well straight away. It's flying hours and you need to give particularly specialist presenters flying hours to develop their technique. What, what do you mean by flying hours? Just I was presenting television. Right. Um, and Brian, you know, and this is quite well documented, if you look at his first horizons, he's not talking down the lens. I didn't think that he was, you know, had perfected that art yet. And so we made two horizons where he was doing the, you know, the Jamie Oliver thing, talking off camera to, to the producer. So we had time to develop him. He, worked, he made three horizons. He worked on BBC Four a little bit as well. And, you know, together we started to develop a sort of a, a style that really worked for him. So by the time we got to Wonders of the Solar System, which was a leap of faith on a, a lot of people's part, we were confident about what we were doing, but it was a leap of faith. We felt that we had something really fresh to bring to kind of the style of factual television. And it's busy time for you as well. And what, 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 tell us about what else you have on air at the moment, just We've briefly. We've had a mad couple of weeks, actually. It's, you know, we never quite know when our shows are going to go out. I but, see you on Twitter, and every time I see um, you, you're tweeting about a different show, which I'm very must be rewarding. I'm very boring on Twitter, is all I basically <laughs> do is tweet about. But if you just look at the last two weeks, we've had Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, which has come back, you know, brilliant popular journalism uh, that has resonated incredibly well, well with the audience. We've had Human Universe, we've had Catwatch, uh, which was stripped last week and repeated again, that has done enormous figures for us and has kind of, you know, people love cats. Um, we've had um, Sky at Night and we've also had a Cosmonauts uh, film that went out on BBC4 on Monday, which was an extraordinary piece of documentary making by Mickey Lackman. So, um, you know, good good times for us at the moment. Yeah, and uh, I guess looking a bit more into the future, there, there there's exciting potential exciting times for BBC in-house and uh, the broader ambition to, to, to spin it off uh, from the rest of the BBC and, and potentially become you know, its own entity in its own right. What do you make of the prospect of bringing the BBC's unique brand of science to other broadcasters? You're going to have to work a lot harder than that to tempt <laughs> me into that political kind of <laughs> quagmire at the moment. I mean, I, do, do you know what? I, I think all we can do at the moment is be the best science production base in the world. I think we are. Um, I think we need to continue to be. And it will be interesting to see where and who we're producing programmes for in the future. I still believe that ultimately the BBC, as a broadcaster, has a critical role in public engagement with, with science. And we do that brilliantly at the moment. And I know the BBC will continue to do that in the future. Um, so... I'm not worrying about it too much at the moment. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us. Human Universe continues next Tuesday at 9pm on BBC Two. Time now to look ahead to what will be beamed into your telly box over the coming weeks. Uh, back with me for uh, a bit of a sweary preview session are Laura Mansfield and Stephen D. Wright. Uh, we will start with Channel 4's Grayson Perry, Who Are You? The British artist follow-up to BAFTA-winning documentary All in the Best Possible Taste. During the Swan film series, Perry explores identity in the age of the selfie, creating several unique portraits featuring people with extraordinary stories to tell. 
In the first of three episodes, he meets X Factor and Celebrity Big Brother star Rylan Clark. I don't think I'll ever be happy because I know it's all fake. It's all fake. But that you're, you're sat here next to me. You're, you know, you're a real person. You're Rylan. But I'm not really Rylan, am I? Like you've got your alter ego. Yeah. Rylan's my one. I'm like I'm little Ross from Stepney Green. Really. What would happen if sort of Ross got up on the stage then? Oh, I'd shit myself. I couldn't do it. And the shit that I get on Twitter, like, I hope you get cancer and die. I hope your mum dies. I hope you fucking get knocked out. Shit like that. I want to leave my house. But they're not talking to Ross. They're talking to Rylan. So that's all right. Rylan can take it. That's his job. <laughs> Stephen, I thought this was fascinating. It was, it was brilliant. It was brilliant TV. I mean, Grayson Perry, for all his kind of ridiculousness in public is amazing on TV. For some magical reason, he has an ability on TV to talk in quite an intellectual, quite a deep way in a very sort of accessible, easily understood televisual way. It's, 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 I, I can't really explain it because it doesn't seem to make sense. It's this guy who he espouses all sorts of quite uh, philosophical art bollocks, so to speak. Um, and yet it's incredibly entertaining He's incredibly good with people. He's fantastic as a communicator. I mean, he is telly gold, and I could watch him doing anything, anything at all. I mean, I, I thought that this was going to be a bit of a letdown after the, the, the class series, but actually this show really opens up and starts to go to places, and, you, you know, you are, you are intrigued as a viewer and entertained, and you actually learn something. It's, it's classic TV and brilliant arts programming because you don't even notice the sort of the arts element of it. You know, it doesn't. It's not pseudo intellectual. It's not pretentious. It's really, really good TV. A glowing report. Do you agree, Laura? I, I totally agree. I mean, for me, this is absolutely what Channel Four is for. The fact that he's he's a really surprising presenter and totally charming. And I particularly loved the way that he effortlessly flowed between sort of interviewing and kind of getting to sort of try and get beneath the skin of celebrities, but also of, of ordinary but extraordinary people and was able to draw so much stuff out of them that you found yourself totally absorbed by the sort of story of a you know a girl who had converted to Islam. That was Kaylee. And she was just, I was mesmerised by her story and he was able to sort of sit in a kitchen with her and her brother and create a, an encounter between two family members that I'm not sure... I'm not sure it was a conversation they'd ever had before, but somehow Grayson Perry sort of facilitated it and made this amazing moment happen where you got an insight into both of them and actually felt that you sort of learned something about about religion and the nature of sort of modern Islam. So I thought it was a wonderful programme and surprising and not clichéd and just delightful. And the, the fact that you get to see some of him... At work. Well, this is it. You know, it, you, you, you forget it's an arts programme because you're so interested in the real-life nature. I mean, that whole scene in the school where he talks with the transgender... Uh, Jazz. Uh, and um, you think, oh, it's going to be really eggy. But it's not. That's the whole thing. It, for some reason, it becomes live and vibrant and, and, and meaningful without being po-faced. It's, it's an incredible ability. I mean, I wonder whether he can present anything. This is the thing. Is it just his ability or is it some sort of magical 
deconstruction of art that you know in, into real life. I mean, this is the thing. It's he's got some sort of incredible communication skill. Do you think Channel Four can keep hold of him? I, I, I know oh, I the, they do. The, the BBC have been going on a bit of a charm offensive with yeah. him. I know he's, for example, been for breakfast with the likes of Peter Salmon and Tony Hall and well no wonder yeah. I mean he, he, you know but his, his class program was so good I mean this is the thing as, as Laura said this is what Channel 4 is for this is what Channel 4 you know leads o- head and shoulders above all the other channels that ability to go where you like you know that that freedom that sort of artistic and intellectual freedom you know if I was Grayson Perry I wouldn't go anywhere else because it's working at the moment not, he, you don't think he'd be tempted by civilization, for example, which he's been linked to the, oh, the BBC sort of revival. That'd be really interesting. Oh. Mm. I'd love to see that. Go, Grayson. Forget what I just said. <laughs> yeah, ignore everything yeah. you've just oh, said. Oh, yeah. And Laura, just quickly, they, I mean, frustratingly, some of the embargoed scenes were not available because they don't want to show the art that he's going to be portraying at the or displaying at the National uh, Portrait Gallery. But it's still, you know, despite not having that payoff, it still worked, didn't it? it well, it felt like a real cliffhanger, actually. And <laughs> I, I'd have never thought I would have said that about, you know, a programme where, you know, a portrait's being painted or, you know, an, a piece of art is being created that you're sort of desperate to see how it looks at the end. And I really was. I absolutely loved it. And I'm, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. OK, so if you want to watch Grace and Perry, Who Are You? It begins on the 22nd of October at 9pm on Channel 4. Uh, Last but not least, we head over to BBC Three, which is preparing to take us into the lives of aristocratic family, the Fulfords. Uh, Having first appeared on Channel 4's cutting-edge documentary, The Effing Fulfords, a decade ago, the BBC Three series will follow the younger members of this eccentric family. Here, eldest son Arthur Fulford plans some spring cleaning on the eve of a car boot sale. I need to do some cleaning. Tidy, not clean. Yeah, tidy. Tidy, not clean. Well, no, clean, not tidy. Then I'm actually, I mean... Wrong way round. Clean, not tidy. People like to see the signs of a place he's lived in. But, I mean, tidy, not clean. Yeah. No, no, you've got it completely the wrong way round. I haven't. This table is clean, but it's not tidy. But people like to see this. But it's not tidy. But it's clean. Yes, that's what I mean. It should be clean, but not tidy. But it is clean. Yeah, but it's not tidy. Well, are you going to wash the floor? No, but what people like to see so untidiness. So then it's going to be tidy. <laughs> uh, kudos to Matt, our producer, for probably picking out the best moment in the whole of the of the programme. Laura, what, what did you think of this one? Clean, not tidy. Um, well, I found myself, just like now, I was highly entertained by it, but I was highly entertained by it sort of despite myself, in that when I heard about the commission... You sort of think, really? They've been on telly before. There's been a whole documentary about them before, which was incredibly arresting and compelling. And then they're doing it again for BBC Three. But then I watched it and it's very, very funny. And they are very watchable characters. So in a weird way, it's like a new group of celebrities has been created. I mean, I sort of feel like this is the beginning of the Osbournes or something. I don't think this is going to be the last that we've seen of the effing Fulfords at all. I suspect there will be loads, loads more and maybe it'll hop to another channel. But uh, no, I mean, I, I was what, highly entertained. BBC Three gets the... Uh, well, it's gets been on Channel down. 4, it's been on BBC Three. Where next? But no, this is not the last we've seen of that family. I do not find them irritating. Like, I, you know, there's some things that are so irritating you can you can sort of sit back and laugh at. But I wasn't quite. Able I mean, to I, get over that I line. hated it for the first minute and a half because I have a natural class warrior, you know, <laughs> socialist streak in me, and don't like my betters. It's like Benefit Street in reverse. Isn't it's it? exactly like that. But the kind of guileless nature, particularly of Arthur and 
and the moronic Edmund, um, you know, it, they, they won you over almost immediately. And it was, it's that thing of, have they ever even seen a TV show before? Because this is what you dream of. If, if you're a reality producer, these kind of people is what you dream of. They will say anything. They don't worry about the consequences. They they seem stupid enough to be uh, to be guileless, but charming enough to be to engage you. I mean, they are fantastic. This is potentially the best reality show I've ever seen. Ever. I loved it because it made me go from hate. You to say love. that every every fortnight. Well, I'm a, I'm a positive guy, <laughs> but no, I mean this is this is just great TV, and it's a perfect length. Half an hour is just right, and the little story. I mean, it it just it totally totally won me over. I mean. The, you know, as a viewer, you get that insight into the squalor that they live in. I mean, the kind of the disgraceful nature of, of you know, great uh, Fulford and their kind of idiocy was just it was fantastic. It was it, I mean, it could have been a scripted sitcom to me that the, 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 the way it worked, the way it was, it was it, it, it really surprised me because I, like Laura, I'd watched it 10 years ago and I thought, oh, cynical to do it again. And then watch this one. I thought this is better than the original. This is because the original was just swearing. This has got that that moment of you see these four young Fulfords about to go into the world, and you think they're going to die and be eaten within two days because they're so innocent, stupid. It's it's got an amazing quality in insofar as it's caught them at that moment. I think the Osbournes is a great comparison, but it is sort of missing a, a Sharon Osbourne type figure, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. But you know, the dad sort of more than makes up for it, really. Where and was where was the mother yeah. uh, behind the cameras? I would have thought. Yeah, they didn't really explain that, and that was yeah. the question. You sort of thought, where is she? And then I thought, well, if I, if I missed some sort of terribly tragic event, <laughs> yeah, I then they feel didn't, guilty about. But they, they didn't, didn't really they didn't explain go it. In, no, but I don't think. I, I mean, we could see that, but I don't think the viewers will notice that so much. But. Um, yeah, she obviously doesn't want to be filmed. I mean, it's as simple as that. <laughs> there was one shot of a, of a woman in there, and I didn't know if that was her or not. But, or the cleaning lady. Yeah. But no, I mean, they're just those three boys and the daughter are t- telly gold. They really are. I enjoyed the uh, the different levels of uh, fuck-up yes, exactly. that he went through. I mean, Edmund, you know, the, the one that's at school. I mean, they should be asking for their, their school fees back. He hasn't learned anything. <laughs> And was he expelled him, though? <laughs> seeing him going around, well, yeah, seeing him going around for the car boot was just comedy gold. You know, I mean, too scared to go out, and Matilda throwing a sickie, then calling an ambulance. You know, these things were just incredible. I mean, well, it did make you, it did make you wonder a little tiny bit to what degree they might have been encouraged down this road. You know, things like just seeing things like roller skating in the house, which you know, to those of us who don't live in an enormous palatial mansion, you think. She's roller skating in the house. Completely um, normal. I'm all often doing it when I'm at my stately home <laughs> at the weekend. In the middle of London. Yeah, when I, when I run down stately home, which I often, you know. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, did you not think when you, it was just that to me that the, the, the reaction of the people that went on the, the tour was exactly my reaction. They liked him because of his guileless, innocent nature. That is what the viewers will, will take off this. They're, these people are not reality whores, and we all know what that means. You know, they're not going to be going into Celebrity Big Brother next year or whatever or, or Strictly. These people are, they're just, you know, they're kind of unique freaks of nature that we've they've managed to... I mean, it's more like a documentary than a reality show. It really is, to my mind. And finding that sort of unusual character 
uh, that allows you to, you know, that doesn't seem to have an internal edit is what you doesn't want. doesn't happen very often. No, no it okay. doesn't. Life is Tough is made by Oxford Film and Television. It begins later this month on BBC Three. Uh, that's your lot for this episode. Huge thanks, as always, uh, to all my guests, Laura Mansfield, Stephen D. Wright and Andrew Cohen. Uh, we'll be back in a fortnight, but until then, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was the magical Matt Hill. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 